Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning in San Francisco, California, to Peter Knights, who's the co-founder and executive director of WildAid, the international conservation group that's been very active in the both the rhino campaigns and the ivory campaigns that uh, we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, for me anyway. <laughs> yes, a very good morning. Uh, let me just kind of give a little bit of background to people, both on WildAid and also on, on what we're going to be talking about today in terms of the announcement of the Chinese government this year that they're imposing uh, a one-year import ban on ivory imports. Now, if you're familiar with, uh, with WildAid, you will have seen you know, their ads all over the world, uh, particularly those of you who live in Asia. You can't really not turn on the TV and see the, the slogan, when the buying stops, the killing can too. And one of the things that makes WildAid kind of interesting, and this is why we're so excited to have Peter on the show, is that in contrast to a lot of other environmental and conservation groups where there is, for lack of a better kind of description, a lot of name-calling and yelling, um, I find personally that WildAid uh, has a lot, of, a lot more success in actually having dialogue with uh, people here in Vietnam and in China and some of these, these countries that are very, very sensitive when it comes to the rhino trade and the ivory trade. And so we're going to actually have a conversation today to get Peter's insights on the recent uh, ivory ban. And also we're going to talk about uh, a new survey that, that WildAid did. And, and Cobus, what's going to be interesting about our conversation today with regards to ivory is that it actually might be uplifting and positive. And I got to say, Cobus, in the five years that you and I have done this podcast, not once has a conversation about ivory ever been uplifting <laughs> and positive. So, Peter, before we get started, let me just read a few statistics that came out of this survey that you did in conjunction with the African Wildlife Foundation and Save the Elephants. It was released on March 3rd. Uh, 95% of respondents in major cities of Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou support a full ban on ivory. 51.5% increase in those who believe elephant poaching is a problem. And this is highlighting the growing awareness in Chinese society of uh, of the problem related to, to ivory. You also on your website then kind of show a progression of different kind of steps that the Chinese government has taken to to limit, to imp, to restrict, to kind of raise awareness about the ivory. I don't really quite know how to describe it. Let me just run through a couple of these key points. February 2015, obviously the one-year suspension of import permits for African ivory carvings. We'll get to that. Uh, last year, Prime Minister Li Keqiang, when he was in Nairobi, Kenya, he pledged $10 million in foreign assistance to African countries for wildlife protection and conservation. Uh, back in April 2014, the government strengthened a wildlife consumption law by mandating jail sentences for eating or buying products made from 420 wildlife species considered rare or endangered. And then in 2014, back in January of last year, the government crushed 6.1 tons of confiscated ivory. Uh, that was done in, in Guangdong province. So reading your website, Peter, and reading your statements on, on the recent ban, it seems like you um, take away from this um, some encouragement, and you're a little bit more optimistic, whereas groups like the Environmental Investigation Agency, they called the one-year ban ineffective. Newspapers have been quoting different conservation groups as saying it's a sham, it's really not going to do anything, mm -hmm. it doesn't go far enough. Why do right. you feel more optimistic than some of your peers in the conservation mm -hmm. movement? 
Well, I think it's a, a continuum of uh, activities that are going on. And the Chinese government, actually, we spoke to them very shortly after um, that announcement was made. They know that this ban is a very, very small thing. It's not the solution. It's a tiny, small administrative step they've taken. They know it's not a big, big, um, you know, it's not the, the, the silver bullet for elephants. Sir. And so, um, but it's part of a continuum of activities that have gone on. One you didn't mention, which I felt was actually very good. They sent um, text messages to everybody uh, who is uh, Chinese people going to Africa when their cell phones switched over carriers. They got a message in Mandarin saying, don't buy rhino horn and don't buy elephant ivory. And that was from the Chinese government. And, you know, in addition to that, um, CCTV in particular, and as you noted, Chinese media, has really backed our campaigns to the tune of last year. We had $200 million worth of donated media space. So it's not that we think, you know, this is the solution and we're there. What we do is we see a pattern of positive action from the Chinese government, and we want to encourage that because who likes to be criticized the whole time? We all like to get a pat on the back when we do something positive. This is a very small step, this ban that's there. The, the, the real winner, and we've talked to the government about this, is if they could ban the sales of ivory within China. That's the thing that would knock the bottom out of the ivory prices and would really make an impact. But some of these steps we see as potentially small steps in that direction. So that's why we'd like to, you know, when, when something happens positively, we'd like to encourage it. Peter, in, in contrast with some of the other um, anti-ivory campaigns, um, Wild Aid seems to focus a lot on on attacking demand. Um, can you talk a yeah. little bit about about the thinking behind that and the ways that that so this kind of charm campaign that 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 Wild Aid you know engages in using a lot of celebrities and mm-hmm. so on? Like like what are the actual like strategies to attack demand in in yeah. a sophisticated way in in Asia? Well, you know, I'm originally for my sins an economist, and what the economics, basic economics tells you that if you try and rest- just restrict the supply, which is what most conservation efforts are, as you noted, they're at the supply side, they're protecting the animals, which is important. But if you just do that in isolation, all you potentially do is push the price up, and that can lead to more push for, you know, it can be actually counterproductive in the end. And so for many years now, we've, we've been insisting, and it's been a, a lonely wilderness for a while, but now everyone's kind of uh, drinking the Kool-Aid and realizing it's important, you have to address the demand. And, you know, we've seen this with the war on drugs. The war on drugs, we spend trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars, trying to stop the supply of drugs. And the reason we haven't even made a dent in it is we haven't really impacted the demand for drugs. Now, the good news about wildlife products is they're not addictive. They're not associated with poverty and despair. In fact, quite the opposite. They're associated almost uniquely with nouveau riche societies, societies where there's been sudden windfalls of money and people go out and spend crazy amounts of money on what I would describe silly things um, like ivory or rhino horn and things like that. And so this is a, 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 a particular point. I call it sometimes the gold rush mentality here in California. We had a gold rush and ridiculous prices were paid for all kinds of silly things um, because there was just that money floating around. And that's what we've seen um, now, for example, in Vietnam with the rhino horn. Uh, you know, that's as the economy's boomed, people are paying ridiculous amounts of money for rhino horn, not even for the so-called traditional uses like fever reducing, but actually in a sort of a way it's being used for hangover cures. People are now claiming it cures cancer. And so this is very much a demand-driven problem in terms of the poaching crisis. So what we've done at Wild Aid is we've tried to use exactly the same techniques as a, a corporation would use to sell you things. We try and use that to unsell you things, to persuade you you don't want it. It's a bit like branding, you know, like someone like Nike may want to have this aspirational quality to its brand to buy things. We want to have an aspirational quality to not consume these products. And so we've been lucky enough to work with incredible icons like Jackie Chan, Yao Ming, um, all kinds of people from all over Asia 
and the West as well. And what we're trying to do is kind of brand positive conservation as something that's aspirational and make these products passe, um, you know, in some cases kind of uh, abhorrent. Um, and it's been a combination of trying to have these icons to be thought leaders, but at the same time, um, you know, tell people what's going on it, with our messages. And they're often only 30 seconds long. We try and make one point each time. And one point may be, this is killing corruption in Africa. This is really cruel to the animals. These animals are going extinct. But bit by bit, we hope we build up a picture for people. And they get to this point where there's a tipping point where they say, you know what, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And we've seen quite great success with shark fin recently. We're starting to see, as, as you've mentioned, some progress on the elephant ivory and the rhino horn, mainly in awareness, because I think, you know, you alluded to this earlier, but very often, um, you know, groups are quite aggressive and saying, oh, people are terrible for doing this. My experience originally as an investigator was that a lot of people in Asia just didn't know what was happening. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't they didn't care. They just didn't have the information to understand the process. And when they did, they were very, very sympathetic. You know, I love this idea of making con uh, conservation aspirational. And, and obviously in this part of the world here in Asia, um, aspiration is everywhere from branding to from education mm -hmm. all over. I mean, these are aspirational countries, people, because they're moving very right. quickly in a different direction. So, you know, and we've seen in our own research uh, here at the China Africa Project, where we do a lot of translation of social media, that there appears to be a very dramatic generational divide in, when it comes to ivory, yeah. that older, older people still kind of have value to it. And younger people, 30 and under, think it's boring and bland and kind of not cool and, you know, and, and yeah. out of fashion. And I guess... My, my question is that when we look at the, the data on the survivability of the elephants in, in the wild, not in captivity, but in the mm -hmm. wild, some estimates have it as 10 years, 20 years at the current pace of killing. And so the criticism that might come to wild aid is great. It's aspirational. You're trying to change people's perceptions. But as you know, perceptions are something that take time. And we have generational divides here. Will the elephants make it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right about that generation. But what we're finding already is that the younger people, just we've seen here in the United States with smoking, it's often the children that have persuaded the parents not to smoke. And we're seeing that big time in Asia on these wildlife issues. We've had shark fin dealers that stopped eating shark fin themselves because their grandchildren asked to. I've had this story told me time and time again. So, yes, um, you know, the younger generations can be the, the vectors of change because, after all, it's, you know, these are their animals that are going. You know, they'll probably be around in our, our lifetimes, our children's, not if we carry on like we are. And so there's that. But also, you know, we've seen this change quite quickly in places. Um, you know, people say you know, change takes a long time. I'm like, have you been to China recently? Because if you travel to China like I do, like mm -hmm. every three or four weeks, every time I go, there's new buildings, there's something's changed. You know, people are now drinking red wine and instead of traditional liquors and things. It's changing very, very quickly. And, and the nature of these societies that are causing the problems, it's the change that's causing the problems. There's new money in there. So they're already going, undergoing a process of change. The question is, what's going to change? And if you think about a traditional education campaign where you're doing it through schools and all this, then absolutely it can take a long time. But if you view this as like an advertising campaign, you view it like, uh, you know, bringing a new product to market, if you like, those things can happen in a quite rapid time period. So, you know, we've seen things in Taiwan, for example, which used to be the biggest consumer of rhino horn. 
Taiwan kind of flipped in like a two or three year process where they were actually sanctioned by the United States, but there was massive media coverage. In that case, the authorities there basically denied the problem, denied it. We kept on exposing that it was really there. And, you know, that had a phenomenal change. And now Taiwan does not really show up on the radar of rhino horn consumption because basically society moved on and decided this is not what we do anymore. We don't get involved in that. So on the one hand, it's a tremendous challenge. On the other hand, we have tools we never had before, the Internet, the, the, the media outreach now where, you know, we just had CCTV, um, China's main TV network, CCTV One just screened our ad with um, David Beckham, Prince William and Yao Ming 72 times in one day. Um, when Prince William visited there. So that's a kind of saturation bombing that you never had before. And so when these things flip, they they, they flip as a society and society can move forward. And we've seen with the shark fin now 50 to 70% reduction in consumption in China, which nobody would ever believe possible. Um, And Um, that... I wonder, sorry to break in, um, I yeah. wonder. I wonder if, if you could tell us a little bit more about the mechanics of actually launching the, these kind of media campaigns in in, in yeah. a place like China. You know, kind of how how are you? How is World Aid? What is World Aid doing that other NGOs and, and similar kind of campaigns are not doing in terms of of using yeah. the media in China? Well, I think first of all we started way before anyone else started. So we were back in two thousand and three, um, even though we're that time a tiny organization we looked at the beijing olympics coming up in 2008 and said this is a massive strategic opportunity where world attention will be on china um and china will be looking both outward and inward and we started recruiting olympic athletes at that time to to get behind this cause and we used very high production values um you know nike i mean somebody a critique of us once was your ads like they're made by nike and i'm like well, that's actually probably the kindest thing you can say to anyone doing this kind of thing um but the, the high production values are something that we've, we've made our own um so they look nice they look good and as, as you alluded to i think earlier um you know they're not trying to chastise or blame people they're trying to make you think about it and once you think about these things then 99% of people come out the right way. They come out making the right conclusions. But it's putting the issues out there, making people talk about it and think about it. So it's really been that investment in the quality, in the um, range of the spokespeople we've had, and also in the relationships we've built over those years with the Chinese media, with the Chinese government, which I hope is built on uh, a mutual respect, um, which sometimes isn't always there. Um, you know, And that has enabled us to have partnerships with people like CCTV, Xinhua, um, kind of unique partnerships with the media. And so we basically created the brand. And so people know who we are. They know we are going to be tough, but not unfairly critical, I hope, is, is where we are. Um, and that there's a consistency. And so now we're in a position where, you know, the Wade brand is known, the slogan, you know, no buying, no killing, basically, is known. And it, it's easier to then do another campaign. You don't have to start from scratch again. People already get the basic notions behind it. Now, I spoke with a few of your colleagues who passed through Vietnam on their way back from China, and this was last year at some mm-hmm. point, and they had actually mm-hmm. had conversations with Chinese policymakers, and that's one of the things, I, from what I understand, that you do yeah. is that you're working within the, the, the legislative and political system in China, and, and they made some allusions as to kind of that, that possibly there is hope for a full ban. Um, I'd be curious. Yeah. They didn't make any promises. I don't want to put that out there. No. The point is, though, is no. that there are factions within the government, 
elements. Um, and a lot of yeah. people misunderstand the Chinese government, thinking it's this yeah. monolithic kind of homogenous entity, when in fact it's just yeah. like any government. There are, you know, there are assholes, and then at the same time there are progressives and there's right. conservatives, and there's, there's right. a lot of different kind of p- moving pieces here. But I guess from an outside looking in, an outsider looking in, we just go, why don't the Chinese just take this move and just ban it? The PR value that yep. they would get in places like the U.S. Yep. and Africa would be just tremendous. Yep. And so we have a difficulty understanding why don't they just take this action? And, and I guess my, I'm yep. curious that from your point of view, who's actually had a chance to work with the Chinese government, what is the thinking on their point of view or some of the objections that you've run into in your conversations that prevent them from taking that next step? Yeah, it is, it is, it is somewhat frustrating because I think banning the ivory sales would be the best thing for Chinese international public relations ever to happen. We already even saw that with the shark fin, where the government took the step of banning shark fin from, uh, from state banquets, and CNN did a great piece where the Chinese government got credit for it. And I'm like, how many times does China get a pat on the back for environmental issues? Almost never. And it's not because they're not doing some good things. They are. They just don't get the credit. And it's a kind of prejudice against it. And so I, I do think, and this is what we tell the officials in China, we meet with them, is this could be a game changer for China in terms of its global international image. You're doing some great stuff, but you need like a flagship. This is a flagship issue you could really win on. Um, and it's, it just gets stuck in various levels of, of bureaucracy and is annoying because um, you do feel if you could sit down with President Xi and explain to him the pros and cons of this, it's kind of a no-brainer decision at that level. But underneath that level, you have people in different ministries. The, you know, the State Forestry Administration is, uh, you know, was originally set up to produce wildlife, <laughs> not to conserve it. And so there are certain elements within that that very much see their job as, you know, creating economic growth, even though the ivory trade, legal ivory trade, is pretty tiny. The legal trade, the illegal is quite big. Um, so, you know, it, it's there. And it's just also that, you know, Chinese government is a super tanker. It can't turn on a dime. These things take time. You have to go through different processes. And the good news is that the National People's Congress, which is there as an advisory body, has consecutively proposed a ban. So it's gone through the processes it should do um, for the Chinese system to work. Yang Ming proposed a ban. There were other um, potential advisors that proposed a ban. It's definitely on the table. And now, you're, you're just relying on people seeing past the immediate sale of five tons of ivory, which in Chinese economic terms is peanuts, to the bigger picture. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head there. In terms of China's Africa connections, you know, which now China and Africa have tremendous trade ties, doing this would be a real, uh, you know, a real uh, supportive thing that the Chinese government would do to those African countries losing their elephants. And I think what's frustrating is, is sometimes, you know, can you get high enough up in the decision-making process that you can get somebody that really has China's overall global interests at heart? To that person, this should be an absolute no-brainer issue. And they really can, you know, from being the, the bad guys, I mean, China seems the bad guys on pollution, so many different issues. This would change people's perception of China. And so, we keep putting that message forward, and we hope that it'll get through. Plus, you know, as our survey showed, this would be popular at home. This yeah. is a domestic has domestic support, and so this is a win-win for the Chinese government if they can just take that step quickly. Do you think that there's a chance that they would announce a ban before the FOCAC summit this uh, this year? Because that is one of the this that that's one of what a lot of people are mm-hmm. thinking is that this was this one-year ban was the precursor to the full ban that they would announce at FOCAC yeah. 
the Forum on China-Africa yeah. Cooperation, which is a big summit this year uh, for yeah. the Chinese in Africa. Yeah. Is there a chance that they might do that, or is the political machinery just not moving fast enough in Beijing to actually uh, expect uh, that to happen? We, do, we really don't know. I mean, this is, you know, the system obviously isn't particularly transparent. <laughs> um, that's the part of the nature of it. But, uh, it, I mean, you know, when they, when they banned Rhino Horn in 1993, the state council banned Rhino Horn, it happened overnight. And nobody knew it was, it was international pressure, things going on, but nobody knew it was going to happen. And boom, it suddenly happened. So, you know, it could happen anytime. Um, you know, the, there have been some recent sort of pressure points and our feeling is very often pressure is, doesn't really help in China. Um, the government doesn't want to be seen to give into pressure as no government does really. But, um, so, you know, the timing could be something like that could be a good trigger. Um, you know, it, we know it's under discussion. We know it's being considered. And we know, as you mentioned, there are people within the Chinese government that are supportive, that get it, that understand it. And the question when that could come through to something, nobody really knows. But we just hope, we're pretty confident when this happens, that the ivory price will fall overnight. And as it did in 1989, when the international ban came in, and then all the other measures like the enforcement and things can sort of live much happier underneath that scenario where, you know, the speculation will be that, you know, it'll be hard for you to sell your ivory and you won't necessarily make the money so that the whole investment element to it could be taken out. Um, do you foresee that that will, you know, that it will happen as smoothly um, on the supply side as well? What I mean is, um, you know, kind of, is, is it a one, one-to-one um, equation where when demand falls in China, um, you know, kind of the, the supply will also fall? Um, or is it a situation that now we have a, you know, can we have criminal networks and, you know, kind of criminal gang mm-hmm. networks set up trafficking ivory and rhino horn from Africa and a whole a whole kind of network of, of corruption in Africa yeah. in, enabling that and that it'll just get trafficked somewhere else? Well, what we saw in 1989 when the, the ivory ban came in is overnight prices fell to 25% of what they were, and the poaching went down. And there was still quite a lot of ivory in the system. you know. And that's the thing. These guys have been stockpiled. There's now 100 and, like 120 tons in Hong Kong, for example, which they've technically are supposed to have had since 1989. But what we believe has been happening is they've been using their permit to have a five tons of ivory to ship in new ivory and just move it through and keep their permit and keep using it. This is what they were doing before. I'm pretty certain that's what they've been doing still now up to date. So there's a certain amount in the system, but what we've just found is as the heat goes off, um, as we found with the shark fin to some example, you know, the, the, then the, the word goes back and the fisherman, the price for new stuff goes much lower and it, it becomes less worthwhile. Um, you know, a lot of these gangs are involved in other things as well. And sometimes what it does is just mean they readjust their portfolio, be it to, you know, stealing cars or whatever else they're engaged in, drug trafficking, um, all kinds of other things they're doing. So we would hope to see, uh, if the Chinese government made that announcement, we'd hope to see fairly rapid um, changes in the field situation in Africa. And there's been a lot of valiant efforts to beef up the enforcement training, much more money going into many African countries now. So those pieces are kind of, you know, ready to, to, to up their game a little bit. But it's the overarching... Um, you know, dollars uh, being paid for this ivory that fuels the corruption and, and all these other things. So we think if there was a, a ban announced in China, pretty much straight away we'd see an impact on the poaching. Peter, we told you before the show started that we are a nonpartisan uh, type of program. We don't take sides between China, Africa, and the U.S. or whoever. But I, I'm going to kind of deviate right. from my policy because the one, the one, the one side in all this that we do take are for the animals, and and this is very important to both Cobus and I. And so uh, we're so grateful that you had the time to to join us today. If our two largest audiences for this show. 
Uh, we do about 100,000 downloads now a month, are in the United States mm-hmm. and in China. Um, and so let's kind of just break down before, before we go. If people in China want to take action and want to participate in your movement and in, to learn more about the cause in Chinese, um, where should they go and what should they do? We have the website, but we also have an app you can download, a wild aid app that keeps you up to date with everything we're doing. You can run our PSAs on, and uh, you can actually even do this crazy thing where you can take a picture of one of the billboards, and it runs the TV message in your, in your phone. So it's a lot of fun. So I'd encourage people to do that. Uh, and then, yes, to check out our social media out in China. With, uh, we're on all the regular uh, outlets there. Um, so uh, we'd love to have people participating more. We had some like 200 million people viewed one of our shark fin events. So um, let's hope we can do that for the elephants too. And on then in the English-speaking world, uh, in Africa, in the U.S., where should people go to, to kind of stay involved with what you're doing if they want to get connected with Wild Aid? www.wildaid.org. And on Twitter? I just got back from Tanzania the other day. So um, uh, we're just launching a campaign in Tanzania as well to take these, this sort of messaging to Africa as well. Fantastic. Again, this is uh, honestly the first time that Cobus and I, uh, and we've probably done maybe Cobus 15, 16 shows on this topic. Yes. Uh, this is genuinely the first time it's actually ending on a positive note, feeling somewhat optimistic. And, and that's, again, I think that's what makes Wild Day different here. So there is some hope. Um, and, uh, and I encourage everybody to check out Wild Aid's website. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. Thank you very much, Steve. And, uh, Cobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. It's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. We've got over a quarter of a million people on our Facebook page where we're having a dis- uh, discussions, disputes, uh, debate, all about uh, topics like the ivory issue. So if we'd love to hear mm-hmm. your voice. We'd love to spread the word. Again, it's a great opportunity for Africans, for Americans, for Europeans. Unfortunately, not too many Chinese can actually get access to Facebook. So, so we're not there yet, but uh, it's a great place to, to, uh, to kind of join this discussion. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, go ahead and just look us up on iTunes, China Africa Project, and you can also follow us on SoundCloud. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.